Hey, hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Beyond Eight Figures. This is your captain, uh, wait, host, that's it, I'm the host. Before we jump into a deep conversation with an entrepreneur brings a lot of inspiration and genuine passion, I'd like to take a moment to thank you. There is a lot I personally get out of each of these interviews, but the truth is we are doing it for you. And you being a part of Beyond Eight Figures and supporting us means the world to me and my team. Thank you so much. Now, the interesting part. I have the honor to speak with a man who exited his last business for over $10 million and shifted his focus onto mental health advocacy. Life wasn't always smooth sailing for him, and I honestly admire how he turned it around and used it as a foundation to create bigger, better opportunities for his future. But this is not my story to tell. So let's welcome an incredible entrepreneur, author, and philanthropist, Param Parastarang, to Beyond Eight Figures. Hi, right, Param. So what's been going on with you? Well, uh, a lot and nothing for uh, basically, since we talked, you know, quite a bit, but about four and a half years ago, I, you know, I sold my company and sold, sold my shops, my main operating business. I still have all my real estate, and, and but that's easy because you're just... You know, you're just uh, basically collecting learns and if there's a problem, but, but for the most part, there's no operating business. So that was about four and a half years ago, um, intentionally. And, uh, you know, we've talked, we, I have young children and, and now they're 16, 14 and 10. And at that time they were, you know, basically 12, eight and six. And so what I really did for up until really now and still do is just really raise my kids and, you know, take them to school every day, pick them up every day, go to every basketball practice, go to every volleyball practice, every dance, everything. And basically just really spent a lot of time with uh, my family and um, really not doing that much. Um, you know, I, I, I was a, also an options trader for, I've been doing it for 10, 15 years. And so really one of the reasons I sold my business was that I got to a point where if I have enough money sitting in a in my in my trading account, I can make pretty much what I was making before, or close to um, when I was running the, the operating business. And so, this, but in this way, I could do my family thing. I could do the little trading, and and you know, I didn't have 250 employees. And so, um, that's essentially what I have been doing up until um, COVID. When COVID happened, as everybody did in many different ways, I had uh, some serious challenges and. Challenges are relative when I say serious, but in the options world, um, without getting into the technicalities of, of what the type of option trading that I do, when the market went down basically 40%, margin requirements go crazy. Long story short, again, not to get into technical, I lost a lot of money. You know, I lost a lot of money. And it's not the first time. It's not the first time I have a challenge like that. But this one, you know, can spook you a little bit. You know, you're four years or three and a half years into sort of retirement. And then you start reevaluating, ooh, did I have enough money put away? Did I did this? You know, you know, all these all these type of things started coming to your mind. Small, you know, even we'll call it doubt. 
um, of, um, of maybe I, I exited too early and, and things like that. But because I'm a law attraction guy, um, nothing gets me down for too long of a period. It, essentially, I can get negative or, or have doubt, but it doesn't really last a long time. And, and for mine, it really flips fairly quickly to, okay, I lost this much. I'm going to get it back and I'm going to figure out something else. And, you know, and, and, and without doing that uh, out loud, it kind of happens unconsciously. And so as a result, all of a sudden things started coming into my world. I got this really lucrative consulting uh, short you know, project that I got. But the most biggest thing that changed that I got was a private equity firm came to me and said, hey, if we give you $40 million, will you go back and do the same thing that you did before? And this basically the 17 stores that I had and then go back and, and sort of recast and, and, and build a project. And I started looking at it. And again, it would have been something I would have never considered had COVID not happened. And had I not lost that, that money in the market, I would have just not earned 10. I was too comfortable. Um, I was just, just frankly too comfortable living a pretty good life, wearing sandals every day and taking my kids here and there and, and trading uh, online, basically. And I was open to talking to them about it. Then next thing you know, this fund started, started working on it. And now, I'm, I mean, I'm doing it right now. So uh, April will be our first acquisition. And basically, I'm going back in the business and I'm just acquiring stores all across the U.S. Um, in the same field that I was doing before. So big change, big change, fun, but exciting. And it kind of rejuvenated me. And so I'm kind of ready back to be an entrepreneur again. And, and the other thing that happened is I, I built an app. I built an app for, uh, for the automotive industry. Uh, and, and that has all of a sudden started going well, where it's getting picked up by a major national firm and uh, in the process of building out for them specifically. So a lot, kind of nothing was going on and then a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people had that experience on that. I really like the interest because of going back in the space. I've played, before I sold my agency, my digital marketing firm, um, we had worked with private equity a lot to kind of um, validate marketing, the digital marketing of acquisitions they were looking. And we had looked at, um, or the, Riverside had looked at um, an auto parts, online auto parts provider. And looking at the marketing side, I've always kept my eyes on it. And like COVID, it did this, you know, auto part. Yeah. So it must be a really interesting time right now. Are you looking at independent stores and you're going to roll them up? That's exactly what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I, I got this uh, pot of money and obviously I'm doing some, I'm doing a lot of things similar to what I was doing, but at the same time, really a lot of things differently than the, than what I was doing previously. Before I was a part of the franchise, even though I had independent, I had four different brands, but they were still ultimately under franchise paying royalties, that type of thing. And, and really you don't have very many buyers um, when you're part of a franchise, either it's your franchisor buys you or it's another franchisee. It's just, it, it, it's a great business. And, and even then I really wanted to get out, but it's uh, it's a tough contract and you just can't get out. And so it worked out really well. I had a five-year non-compete, so I'm four and a half years into the non-compete. So I had a five-year non-compete. And so uh, the timing of this also was better. You know, I, I couldn't even entertain it, you know, one and a half years. Ago. I was too far into the, too much left in the non-compete. But basically I'm buying independent stores in geographic areas that I specifically want to be in that are growth areas or there's uh, so much fragmentation, right? And there's 
And in our industry, there's a ton of fragmentation. It's uh, still 160,000 out of 270,000 stores in America are owned by a single owner. Um, and they're not big groups of, of, of ownerships. And so basically, and a lot of them don't have exit plans. Um, like a lot of probably your listeners right now that are in business, um, they don't really think about their exit and they don't really have an exit plan. So basically, essentially what I'm doing is I'm targeting them and going to a good operation that's a single owner and might be called Bill's Tire and Auto in, in Alabama, for example. And I uh, go to them and, 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 and they never even thought about selling, don't know how to sell. I go and buy them and, and then eventually buy five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten around that same geographic area. And then maybe, maybe not, but at some point change their names to one entity, one advertising flag, one brand flag. And the next thing you, know, you have 15 stores, you know, within a two, three hour um, drive or a, or a 40, 50 mile radius, all called the same thing, all good operators, you know, good businesses, but now kind of rolled up into one big bundle much more valuable than making it much more valuable in the long run. I like that a lot. I've gotten, and one of the things I've gotten into starting last year was looking at acquiring, I had bought with my agency, I bought some smaller firms, but you know, more just luck now looking at acquisition entrepreneurship. Yeah. I do think there's a lot of opportunity. It sounds very much like each store needs to be able to be contributing on their own. But then down the road, the idea is the overhead you can kind of merge and pull together. I mean, you are uh, 100% correct. So the difference between, and I mentioned between what I was doing prior and what I was doing now, before I was doing it for myself and, and you know, one of my core competencies and, and, and on top of the core competencies was something I enjoyed a lot is I enjoyed taking something that wasn't good and trying to make it a little bit better. So I used to seek out operations or stores that were struggling. I get them for nothing next to nothing. And then over a longer period of time, you know, two, three, you know, it takes a little bit longer to take a troubled store and build it, manager, employees. It's very difficult, in fact. But um, that's what I was doing before. And that's what I thrived on or really enjoyed. The difference between here is, A, we have all these investors and and also, it's just not part of my game plan because this is maybe a three, five, six year game plan. And that is that every store we buy has a cash flow and we're buying them off of cash flow. So every store right off the bat has cash flow. It fits the balance sheet. And there's no store that we would buy that we'd have to go and rebuild because, A, I'm not going to set up our infrastructure that way. So that's a huge that's a huge uh, element to it. And B, the time frame is a lot longer and a little bit more uncertain. When you're buying a store that's doing $1.5 million and maybe making $150,000 a year, it's much more predictable what I'm buying. And then you exactly to your point and what you just said, once you have 10 of them or five of them really, and I already have my own because of my history and, and, and my reputation before, everybody knew I had a lot of stores. And so I'm already getting the same acquisition pricing on the tires and the parts that I was even on this first operation where I'm going to buy four stores. To, to repeat that is that the same cost synergies that I had when I had 17, 18 stores, I'm doing on day one with, with four stores. And that is because they know I'm expanding. And right off the bat, without improving the sales, um, there should be some cost energies, back office, like you said, which is ultimately overhead, however you want to look at it. But all of those things come into play. And if we so happen to improve the sales, wonderful. It's not contingent on it. And 
I'd be very curious on this space because you know, I play in the digital space and I've started kicking tires and literally I found a couple of times I've been outbid on things I've kind of thought were overpriced. So <laughs> I'm a little worried. Is there much activity in this space? Because I don't hear about it as much, you know, the typical mom and pop or the independent. You don't hear about those types of stores selling as frequently as a digital site, a SaaS program, you know, SaaS or stuff. Are the people who are running these businesses, you said they're not really thinking about it, but when they come to valuation, how are they thinking about valuation or is it all over the place? Generally speaking, they struggle with that um, because they've never been in the business of buying and selling. They've just, they've just been a guy who really runs a good business. He actually is in his store. He runs the store. He's not a businessman necessarily. And, 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 and that's really part of the thing. And it, that the reason that the multiples that you buy in the individual store are lower is for that exact reason. Um, they are at a point where they might own the building and they would like to get a little bit of cash, get their equipment and get a little bit multiple off of their earnings. Okay. But they want to get a rent. They want to get an annuity. They basically will rent your building for the next 10 years, $18,000 a month. They're very happy because that's how they view their retirement. They've, they're 65 years old or 70 years old. They've ran a nice business. Now they just want to get $8,000 a month and maybe they got a couple hundred thousand dollars or $300,000 for selling their business. That's the general that's the general demographic and the general type that is. And these are happening all over the place. But the big one, the stuff that's happening right now is the guys that own 5, 6, 10, 14, 17 stores like I did. These guys are being bought up like crazy by the, the big dogs, the publicly traded companies. Just for example, Les Schwab just got bought or is in the process of getting bought by a private equity for $6 billion. So it's not a sexy area. That's probably why you don't hear about it. But M&A is very active in this field. Consolidation is extremely active, which is exactly why I'm doing it. I wouldn't be doing it had I not seen this opportunity. I believe over the next 10 years, there's just, you know, the, the big guys still only own about 5%, maybe 4% of all the tire and auto stores that are out there. So 96% of auto repair dollars are still in the mom and pop, the person that owns one store. So that consolidation is going to, that it's going to take place and it's going to continue for a long period of time. And I just happened to be in the space and I knew the space and that was the deal with the private equity. I was like, can I take advantage of that? Or can I, is there an opportunity for me to, to do that? And that's exactly, and honestly, I feel good about it because it really helps the mom and pop people because they now have a buyer. They have people that will come and buy one store. Um, you know, the big companies aren't going to go buy one store. They just, too expensive for them to go buy one store in Alabama. But if I go and accumulate a few stores, you know, ones, you know, a little bit at a time in Alabama and consolidate those, now the buyers will be like, sure, I'll buy 12 stores from you, but because it's already set up. And, and essentially that's what I'm playing. Okay. So your goal is, you know, you do, you know, you're cleaning up the individual properties and putting them into a playbook and then letting someone else come and pay you an extra multiple or so on. Nice. Very nice. I like, I like yeah, that. Cause exactly I, right. I keep, you know, this happens all over the place, AJ. I mean, it's just, you know, yeah. the automotive is just not a sexy, so you don't hear about, but you know, that's kind of, you know, real estate, my friends in real estate, same, same exact thing. You know, if you have one apartment building, you know, it, it's worth something and there's a, there's a cash flow to it. Um, and if I'm buying one apartment building, that's a $2 million building. Well, that's a, that kind of a small acquisition. It, has traditional financing. You know, I go down, go to the bank, put 20% down, maybe finance 80%. And when you have that traditional financing, 
you cap out of what you can buy something or sell something for that transaction because at the end of the day, the cash flow has to support the financing, right? Now, when you have 10 of these buildings, the buyer that's buying it has an entirely different financing structure. It might be a private equity. It might be an insurance company. It might be a REIT, right? They have a very different financing structure. So all of a sudden that multiple changes, right? And so the same thing is happening with my friends in the, in, in the, uh, in uh, student housing is that they have one building, it's worth X. They have 10 of these buildings, all of a sudden it's worth three and a half times that same X that they used to have. Yeah, it's a, it is a really fascinating space because, you know, the reasons of going in and I, I've been playing around, it's like, it's really nice to be able to buy a revenue stream and the margins compared to other revenue stream, you know, or sorry, the multiples compared to other are much more reasonable around an acquisition. Yes, there's a higher work level to it. You're not, it's not as passive, but it is great. So are you using your own outbound sales process, your own bound prospecting to go, you know, reach out? Or are you looking for listings that exist or how, how are you going to find these? Generally, none of the, generally there's just no listings. Um, so there, there's, I wish, I, I don't know. I'm glad there isn't, but there is really no system or, um, when you go in and, and, and there's people listing their shops. So typically most of this comes from being an insider and one person hears from this, one person hears from that. So if you want, I'll just take you to, to a small example of the, 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 the multiple channels. So I was in the tire and automotive business, right? And so I, my distributor, for example, it's one of the biggest tire distributors in America. I think second or third now biggest. Um, they just keep acquiring. Um, but so I was very close with them, for example, and I, and I was a big customer, but, but the more importantly, I was really close with the CEO and the, and the number two person in the company. And, and a lot of the, the, the upper executives in the company, we just were friends and became friends over the time of being a customer relationship. Well, as soon as I started going to back into doing this, you know, it's one phone call and I'm like, Hey guys, uh, I'm going back in, I'm looking for shops. Next thing you know, they have 500 sales, a sales, sales staff that's, you know, servicing all these stores, right, all over the place. And now they know, hey, Parm's looking for stores. And so I've already received, I don't know, a 9, 12, 14, 15 stores that weren't on the market that they made introductions to for me to go and be able to buy. And it's nice for them because when I get to buy, I continue buying. They know I'm going to continue buying tires from them because they're like, so it's good for them. So they, so they, they, they put me into these stores or at least make the connections and put in somebody's ear. Hey, if you are interested in selling, there's a guy out here. It's a friend of ours. He's a good guy. You might want to talk to him. So that's one channel. The other channel is once you go into a market. And so, for example, our one of the markets we're going to right now is Montgomery, Alabama. And we're buying a three-store operation right there. So once I go there, I'll get into the town. And believe it or not, like any industry, it becomes small. I, I go to, to their next door neighbor. Hey, if you're interested, I'm here. Next thing you know, he tells somebody else, hey, there's a guy buying. Da, 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 da. They make a phone call and, and it happens like that. The third is there are brokers that do this. There are brokers that do this in the space. There's not very many. I just happen to be friends with one of them. And so he's the one, for example, that, that, that found these stores in Alabama um, for me. Yeah. And so he's doing the work of convincing them. Yeah. And yeah. you're... you're- you're letting him know you're willing to buy, but exactly. he has to do the work. Exactly. Yeah. And, and like I said, going back to what I said, a lot of people who are a smaller operation um, that are running their businesses, they don't scan the environment a lot. They don't really know what's going on around them. They're just so, they are so in their business 
And, um, you know, that's good. That's why they have good operations. Um, but they are so into, but they're not really paying attention to what's going on in the market, who's doing these things. And so all it takes for somebody to come and say, Hey, there's a guy interested in buying. And at least it puts it in their, in their mind. And they might say, no, 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 I'm not selling. But the next, you know, six months later, they call you and like, are you still interested? And, and it, that's the, that's the way it works. Now the bigger operations, that's a whole different way to buy stuff. And stuff. are you sort of keeping them in place and sort of earning them out so they, you know, sort of have a, a generalized, like a bit of change and then sort of earn out over time and then you get to replace management or what's the kind of the process you're looking so at? So that's the, the, the one thing that's, again, very different than what I used to do before is, is my goal is to make as little change as possible. And inherent in that is that if you're buying a good operation, generally speaking, it's probably got a good staff, good manager, good technician. They're doing the volume that they're doing and they're a good operation, which is the ones I'm seeking. Um, they're generally got a good staff in place anyway. And so I don't need, really need to go in there and reinvent what they're doing. On top of it, that's how you lose people. And, and that's, that's how you, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they're doing X amount of sales and it goes down because you lose somebody. So I can't risk doing that. So the goal is actually to not make very many changes. And, and in fact, we call it Operation Minimal Disturbance, um, which is very different than what I used to do before. I used to disturb everything. I'd go in there and, you know, start an entire new manager and, and rebuild the whole system. And because obviously they're a troubling store, so you don't keep doing the same thing. In this case, a little bit different. We do the same things that they were doing. We try. I mean, I, when there's obvious areas that we can help and that the, the shop and the managers and the employees are willing to make that change, we will. We won't force that kind of change because we really... Um, will hurt us by losing staff. Then we kind of go backwards. So we got to keep it. Clean. And then there's there's plenty to take advantage of without making change. Like the economies of scale, buying tires at a different price. You know those those type of things. Insurance con consolidation, back office consolidation. Those in itself will do the trick. And if there's a low hanging fruit somewhere with the change, of course we would take care of it. And and we will introduce our sales processes. But we will do it when a shop is ready to receive us. We won't force it. That's the difference between now and what I did before. It sounds like your focus as entrepreneur has changed a lot in the way you're looking at. Can you maybe kind of delve a little bit into that? Because you know, you've been successful being the guy who you know, picked over and kind of changed things that weren't working. But it sounds like you're really excited about this idea of, in a sense, using your experience of what works in the past and just repeating that part versus new mistake. Well, you'll yeah, make new I, mistakes. I, I love this question. I love this question because it's something that I give a lot of thought to. And so the, um, the excitement comes, the, the real excitement comes from anybody, yourself. I don't care how successful they've been. When I look back at the things that I was doing, all I see is, holy cow, I made so many mistakes. So I can't wait to write those shit. You know, I had, now I start clean. You know, it's like a clean canvas, right? And I get to start over with the clean canvas and, and clean up the mistakes I did, and really take advantage of the things that I was really good at. Okay, so that that is that brings me a lot of energy. That that's really exciting for me to be able to have this you know blank sort of a, a of a canvas. Um, the uh, the other component of of what I really you know what what's really different is that. In the past, you know, even though I was a, you know, good sized company, 17 locations, and, and I still didn't know what I was doing in the sense of, I didn't really have a goal. You know, there was like, what, you know, do I get to 20 stores? Am I trying to get to this one? I really just was, I still was just reacting in very many ways. I was fairly reactive and that might seem odd to your listeners and yourself 
that somebody would have 17 stores, two exits with a REIT and a private, um, a public traded company. But it really was without purpose. You know, there was really no game plan. It was, it was, I was reacting to the market, reacting to what I felt like. I want to add a store because it was available. What's different here is I have a very clear goal. I have very clear metrics. I have very clear idea of what I want to do and what I don't want to do, right? Where discipline is going to be a very important component of our core competency in this thing. We have to buy correctly, not make any two changes, even though when it seems like you want to. Very different than before. I was a renegade. I was a cowboy, as my friends would tell me, that I was a, you know, it worked out, but but I was a cowboy businessman. Now this version 2.0 is a little bit more refined, um, has had had a chance to sit back for four years, contemplate those things. And, uh, and going back to it, this slight amount of refinement is exciting because, again, um, it's got purpose. Uh, I, I brought a lot of the same team back with me. Um, but more importantly, it has discipline. And there's just some things I know that I will not do. And if you don't mind, I'll give you an example. When you're running an operation and you buy a store or you buy a podcast or you buy a digital company, right? You, when you've been doing it for so long and you see somebody doing something operationally really poorly, it is impossible to sit back and just accept that. You just want to jump in and make that change. You'd be like, no, no, no. You can't do it this way. You can't do it this way. Well, there's a time and place, and, and this is a place for it, is that I actually do have to sit back and while it's going to kill me because I know there's a better way for them to do this inspection or there's a better way to talk to this customer or there's a better way to do the sales transaction, I have to, have to sit back and let them do that um, because the risk of doing what I was doing before and making those big changes is too great when you're running a very specific project that has to do with roll-up. Yeah, that – I think it's interesting because I do. you do hear a lot of people say something, I now have to do this, but I think you added that nice thing of why, and that explains sort of your growth. There's this bigger opportunity that you've put, you know, you've brought yourself to sort of this ability now because of the previous success you had and the previous struggles. Now that you're at this capability to go for something higher, you, you know, it's the experience you've had the partners you're taking on, but then also just the realization that dealing with that. Um, how does that feel as an entrepreneur? And you seem very, you know, you have it very buttoned down, but are you comfortable with that? Yeah, I'm, I'm more comfortable with it because, because, um, and I had, again, I, I'll, I'll use that phrase again, the, you know, a cowboy, uh, one of my best friends, an incredible entrepreneur, very successful in the real estate market. Um, he never understood why I didn't go back into business. He's like, he just, he never talked about it, but he's like, I know one day Parm's going to go back into this business. And it kind of just sort of happened. And he said, the reason is that your 2.0 version that, that is, is so different than this cowboy version. So it still feels unbelievably entrepreneurial. Okay. But this added element of, and I know I'm repeating myself, but this added element of discipline and very specific goal, for example, it feels more like a CEO in this in this relationship and entrepreneur with me than it did a, a wild entrepreneur that was just you know building business and, and, and doing whatever, right? Um, the other part, believe it or not, that's really exciting for me is I have investors. And for whatever reason, I think I know why, but I think for – I'll still say for whatever reason, this extra added responsibility – for me to have investors that, that I have to 
to, 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 um, to respond to or, or to take care of essentially. It's not my money. If I failed before, it's on me. You know, that, you know, I, I lose money or I don't make enough money or something like this. If I fail here, I, I, I hurt people, you know, you know, I know there are big boys and girls that are investing in this operation, but, but still, um, this extra added pressure and responsibility further, further helps my able to be able to have this disciplined, refined sort of look at the world, which is a lot like what a CEO would, would approach things like. And for me, that's new. For me, that's new, and and new equals exciting for me. I like that. A new a new experience and a new part of your journey. Yeah. So I while like it's that. the same business, it's unbelievably how different it feels. It just has a completely different feel to it. Um, there's a part that feels more professional. There's a part I don't know. It's um, it's very different. It's very different. I would I never would have thought I would enjoy this process so much as I do right now. It's funny um, saying that because I know for a fact I sort of started becoming an entrepreneur because I hated working for other people. Um, but as you go through the process and you start going, I did start and now some of my companies are very much more about wanting that more, not structure where someone's telling me what to do. I don't want to go work for someone, but this idea of you know outside investment in this do you, you know, when you talk to other entrepreneurs, when do you see that kind of change happening for them that, you know, like, no, nope, I need to do this myself versus, okay, huh, there is a bigger opportunity if I get a little bit, you know, more cleaned up per se. You know, the ones that I know, the ones that I know, almost all of them, when they got really big, almost went to the same kind of path that I've done. They all... Do, do get to a certain level on their own. And then a lot of, you know, this might just be randomly the, the, the friends and, the, and the, the people I'm around, but all of them, if they were all standing behind me, the, the great entrepreneur and friends that I have and the businessmen that I have, they all do better with partners. They have all done better eventually partnering up and, and using that as a scaling. It, um, it adds, I mean, we can go on and on. Why, why adding the partners and, and why the scaling that improves with that? But all of them, in, a, in essence, eventually went on to partner with something, whether it was other people, other um, cash, you know, a private equity or another investment vehicle. They all partnered with something that sort of fueled this next level for them. And almost all of them would probably sit here and tell you the same thing, AJ, about this the the version 2.0 and having a, just a completely different feel to it. It's good to hear, and it is something because I think a lot of times entrepreneurs are so focused. You know, once we create something, we're like, "Oh my God, it's living! It breathes! It makes money! It, it's doing something!" And then all of a sudden, you know, you forget that you, yeah, the business, whatever happens with the business, will do whatever it's doing. You, as the entrepreneur, there are other things for you that you have, you know, that will be possible. Plus things you have to do as family and you know, children and that. The idea that you can grow to be a better entrepreneur in a different type of situation, I think is something that most entrepreneur most entrepreneurs don't think about. When, we were, when you were talking offline and you were talking about, you know, hitting sort of this plateau and then kind of always getting stuck around there. And I said there's something that I'd like to kind of bring up. And so you get to a certain place, okay, and then in my case I exited and some people do or don't. 
it still feels very mom and pop like, even though it's doesn't matter whether it's 17 stores or eight stores or five stores, it's still really my pop. I was the, I was the sole owner and, and, you know, and then, and it was me that made a decision. There was no, no accountability. It was just whatever I did. So as, as long as there's no accountability in that sense, you're, you're the optional. But one of the things that happens is also when you're on your own and, 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 and you don't have, you're not looking at these other things, you kind of have this cap out, this kind of ceiling that gets naturally put in. You think, I can only do so much on my own or something. Like that. And you don't even know that these ceilings could be higher. And so in my case, I thought I did really well. Okay. I thought I really did really well. And then once I exited and I started looking around, I started doing this consulting and looking around, I'm like, holy cow, I did not do well. I mean, I, I did, you know, it's, it's relative, but there was so much more out there for me to do. Man, did I miss this whole consolidation boat. Man, did I miss this whole game plan with this thing. And, and, and it turned out to be a good thing because I got rid of my, my being part of the franchise. Now I can go and independent, be an independent dealer. But what happens is until you sort of quit something, you don't see what that other thing is. I, I make the same analogy. And sometimes when people are working at a job, you know, working for a company, sometimes the best thing that happens for them that they get fired, right? And why is that? And the reason is that they finally, once they're not in that system and they're outside of that system, they look around and be like, holy cow, I was worth more than that. I didn't even look at that because I was so involved in this thing. And, and I would say the same thing with me that I was so involved in my thing that I sort of had a mental cap of what my company was worth and what it got to, and I sold myself short. I, and I thought this was it. This is the best Parham could do. This is a really good life. You did a great job. Bravo, Parham. And that's the ceiling that I produced, and, it became, and I realized it was really mental. It was really mental. But sometimes, it's like the old phrase, you got to get to this hill before you can see the other side. But sometimes, if you told yourself that this was a great mountain to climb, then once you climb it, you're going to stop. You know, you, you, you have an op, you, there's a chance that you'll just mentally stop because you feel like this is where I was and this is the best I can do. So that's what happened with me. I realized, man, there's these other doors. And I started looking at my other friends and things like that. I'm like, wow, they used to, you know, have a $20 million business. Now they have a $200 million business. And what's different between them and me, it was just that I stopped because I thought this is it. I thought this was good enough. And... Now I don't feel that that's good enough. I'm not sure I believe that ever there's going to be a ceiling that I put on anything going forward because sometimes your dreams of being too big can scare you and say there's no possible way, but then it happens. People do it all the time. And I'm saying, what's the difference between me and them is that, that I actually put a ceiling on myself and I'm a very positive guy, but I did it myself. Earlier, you had mentioned, you know, use the law of attraction. Is there something you use to change that mindset? You know, is there a process, you know, books? What kind of helped you change, you know, that limiting, you know, for, you know, to use kind of the speak of that, that limiting belief that you had before? I, you know, once I stopped, you know, there, there was no books that did it. It was really just talking to people. And then, you know, ultimately it came out of result of fear. I re, you know, when I was like, I need to go do something again, or I wanted to go do something again. And as I started looking around, all these people want to give money to me. You know, all, all these people want to invest. Um, and we raised money like, like, like it was like nothing. And all of a sudden I'm starting to think, God darn, you know, I, I had something good going on and I didn't even really realize how good I had it. Had I, you know, five years ago started thinking about this or 10 years ago started thinking about this, you know, I might've had 200 stores right now, but at that time it seemed inconceivable. So it was really just talking around 
And I think I needed to step back for me personally. I needed to step back for me. And, and, and I am a law of attraction person, which basically means you get what you think about, right? Well, I actually put it to exercise. I got what I thought about. The only problem was I thought too low. You know, I just dreamed a little bit too little. I dreamed more than most people, but according to my body and my capabilities, I dreamed a little bit too low. And my guess is everybody does that at some level, except the Elon Musk's and the Jeff Bezos. And, you know, these, these probably never start, never accept anything as being good enough. Um, I unfortunately took my own practice of law of attraction, how I think, and yet I put a barrier on myself. That's all I did. I didn't do anything bad. I didn't, I believed I was positive. I just thought this was a really good number. Yeah. And yeah, this is where it's so interesting and so difficult about being an entrepreneur. You know, we have very small violins we get to play when we talk about, you know, our limiting beliefs. But the reality is when you're in this position, you know, I look back at the things I didn't do and the mistakes I made and realized I had a platform that if I had used it in a more effective manner would give me opportunities that, you know, I didn't even imagine at the time that I had it. So, yeah. So what do you do now to make sure you're dreaming big? That's a what great, is it? great, great point. I actually, and that, I mean, this gets into the psychology of things I and mean, we can just touch on it, but you know, I wrote that book, Perfect Pain. And so Perfect Pain was, you know, my psychological journey with all my challenges in the past with drugs and, and depression and all these things and doing now 18 years of, of, of psychoanalysis therapy. And so one of the things that I did differently was that, that I know contributed to this, how I put the ceiling on is that because of my depression, because of my childhood, because of growing up very poor, all of these things for, I still, I, I put a ceiling on these accomplishments, which were grand compared to where I come from and living in a, in, in subsidized housing to, 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 you know, to, to, to be able to essentially retire at 45 was a big jump, right? It was a huge jump. And so mentally, as a result of my depression and the, and, and the challenge I had, I naturally had this little doubt or the other way to put it is guilt that when things got really good for me, I got uncomfortable. And, and so that's why I backed down. And that's why I said, oh, this is good enough, Carm. Don't be greedy. This is good enough. This is good enough. This is good enough. So now what I've done differently to answer your question is that I realize, and I talk with my psychoanalyst doctor about this all the time, and that's been my new theme for almost six months now, is that I was wrong. I was wrong to associate success with being a bad person. I was, I was associating with being really successful and having a lot of money and, and I had this guilt about it that, that, you know, that meant somebody else didn't have money or meant, you know, why are you so lucky and, and somebody else is living in poverty and why are you? And what really ended up happening is I started really managing things that they really don't have one doesn't have to do with the other. Um, is, is me reaching and doing the best of my potential um, as long as I do it humbly and give back and, and really have a game plan for giving back, okay, then you should actually exploit it. You should never dream small. Just do it, dream to the max and just keep going and going. And now everything I'm doing is guilt-free. And it, it, so I don't know what, I mean, it's miraculous what happened in the last six months, but I just lost all my guilt about being really, really successful and earning money. And, and if, and if I want to go make $100 million on this deal, 
I don't have a problem with it, but I know in the back of my mind, and I've already written down, I'm going to give it to charity. I'm going to do stuff. I have a foundation that, you know, I, 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 I do that at least to balance the things. And of course, I'll be humble and, and, and a generous and a good person along the way. But I had this crazy association. I think maybe some people do at some level because I know all my friends that make money, they always have a sense of guilt. There's a certain level of guilt that they have. And, um, and a lot of people that make a lot of money are, you know, become that way and become really successful out of some pain, out of some some childhood pain or some poverty or some issue with their dad or some issue with being a geek or some issue with being unpopular. Something drives them and fuels that that desire. So then because of that, because it's psychologically based, that ambition is psychologically based, you've got to somehow reconcile and work to find out why are you so ambitious and make sure you're not doing it for the wrong reasons. We all, I was doing it for the wrong reasons. I was trying to tell my parents, um, I can do this. I don't want to be poor anymore. And the, so that had so much tension and psychological stuff into it, right? So I had to really work through that and unwind that. And now I'm doing it because it's okay that I'm good at this. It's okay that 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 I'm ambitious. And it's okay that maybe my uh, a friend or another neighbor or another person in town isn't ambitious as me and just wants to work, just wants to work a nine to five job. I can't feel bad about that. I've got to do what I got to do. That's best for me and without guilt. So no, I I like that a lot and that's something I'm gonna, you know, really try and you know reflect on and take to heart because yeah, I think a lot of us do th- you know, the entrepreneurial path from a lot of people, myself and others I've spoken with, a lot of us we do it because other things didn't happen. That's a great fire, and I know it does push you out the door, it does push you, makes that extra call. It's like, sorry, no, you can't say no. This is gonna be a yes. You know, you make it happen. But forcing it only takes you so far. Eventually, it'll crash. Yeah. So yeah, that is something. You see it all the time in really successful people. That that fire, if it's built out of a fire, as opposed to just organized, in, integrated. You know, I'm going to do the next step. This is the next step. This is the next step. Instead of having this emotional feel to why you want money and why you want to be successful or why you want to get this job, when it's got that emotional fuel and fire to it, then it's also going to have that, that same thing is also going to, that emotional fire is also going to crash because it's built on a faulty foundation. And we see it all the time. People crash all the time. Actors, basketball players, football players that earn lots of money, CEOs, uh, head of the IMF, <laughs> one of the head of the IMF that was going to be the next president of France. I mean, and, and these people, crash. Yes. <laughs> these people crash because their success was ungrounded and it was based on, all the things that you, the way you just described. Yeah, that noise. It's funny. Well, what's something you're seeing that makes you excited? Like a innovation, a space, a concept, something that's going on that you're excited to either see happen or to utilize, you know, in your efforts moving forward? Um, you know, something I've never really thought, thought about, um, I mean, the easy answer is obviously there's, you know, there's technology, um, you know, in, in my industry, you know, the tire and automotive industry, if you think about it, you know, a car rolls into a bay, people think of somebody with greasy hands and take the tire off and check into brakes. And, and it seems very mechanical and very industrial and things that have been, you know, not, not too altered for years and years and years. Um, so, you know, there is absolute opportunity to bring technology 
into an operation that seems to be very hands-oriented, almost like a factory. So that, that that's always exciting, and, and we're absolutely, it's one of our pillars of, of, of how we improve the EBITDA of, of, of this, the operations that we're buying is, is technology. Um, that, that's exciting to me. That's exciting to me. Um, there's obviously a lot of things that necessarily aren't exciting either. Um, labor force is tough. You know, people aren't going into this type of business. Uh, so those are challenges. And I tend to think of those obviously as opportunities as well, because everybody's going to have that same challenge. But I would mainly say it was really just the technology of some of the changes that have come into this field, because the last type of operations that people want to build a technology platform for is these very, you know, automotive is boring, you know, and so people rather build a technology and do marketing and, and all this, you know, all these other things. And so they're very late to the game. And so we potentially have an opportunity to be a little bit earlier to the game. And, and that's exciting. No, and it, especially since, you know, on an individual basis, these businesses really, it's not even the cost because technology costs have dropped. I mean, I'm paying barely a 20th of what I did in the early nineties with my first agency just to have a computer <laughs> and there was nothing, but the knowledge of how, you know, to have someone to actually be able to afford the manpower to think about the utilization of technology, that's become, you know, that defining line because that is, you know, that is, you know, such a cool advancement of what we're facing. Yeah. And some of the team members that I brought on on, the, on our executive team are all young. Um, and one's not even in the business, never been in the business, you know? And so he brings a lot of, and, and, and that's part of his role is to, to make us a little more, more modern, whether it's from our, how he, he's, it's also the CFO, but he's basically still going to be managing where our financial systems and, and our, how we get our metrics and how we get, you know, in the past, you know, we'd have an accountant or something, you know, we did internally, but still my P&Ls would come 15 days or 20 days after that month, right? And now we're going to be real live. We're going to be real time with our P&Ls and really understand what's going on every day or at least every week. Um, technologies that help us save money on the back end, help us with our inspections, for example, just digital inspections. So when you have your car viewed before you walk in the store and tell you, hey, your brakes are bad, but now you don't need to come to the store. You just travel, we'll send you pictures and videos of how, what your car looks like and, and those things. And those, those, those speed things up and those aren't being done. Those aren't being done at most shops. And so. No. And that's, and those are great. You know, yes, they're incremental on their margin, which drops the bottom line, but even more important, I think, differentiates you from the marketplace. Yeah, like some of your listeners that, you know, have, you know, smaller businesses or, you know, one shop operations in any case, um, it's not that they can't, like you said, afford the technology. They don't know what's out there. And, and, and I don't know what's out there. Even. I'm, old, I'm too old. I'm, I'm too, you know, I've been doing this 27 years. I'm too old almost. So I have to bring in new people to tell me what is out there because I don't know what's out there. It's funny. Yeah. One of my, um, one of the businesses I, I run now is nothing more than just showing what growth technologies are out there for business based on where they are, what their objectives are and the people they have on hand. So it's like, here, we're going to get rid of the noise. These will work for you. It's a great idea for a business. Very helpful. too. You talk earlier, you know, that now and in this next approach, you're putting together a foundation, you have a plan for giving away. Um, what is it that you're doing? You know, what do you look for to do, you know, from a philanthropy? So historically, I have been, you know, I don't want to my home, very, very generous to charities and our local charities. 
but it's always been, a, and, and people in my community know that if you look me up, you'll see all the organizations and the charity events that I founded and, and started. So that's always been an important part of my life. And, and, and quite honestly, in the past, you know, let's call it 90% of that was genuine and me really wanting to make a difference. And let's say 85 and 15% to be completely honest was just good business. It was just good business to be, you know, be the, be, be a local business and then give away me and, and do those things. And maybe, if we're being perfectly honest, but it wasn't completely genuine. It wasn't completely genuine. There was business attached to it. There was a return that I was looking for when I donated to such and such charities and things like that. So going future, um, I don't want to do as much of that kind of stuff. I would rather have a foundation that has one specific thing that's near and dear to my heart, and that is helping kids at a very young age through whether it's psychological help or just a place where they can go that's with well-trained people to help them gain confidence and, and build themselves up and become strong as, as, as even in different tough environments at, at a very young age. So that hopefully by the time they're 18, 19 years old, they can be a little more resilient. And again, not have this barrier that this is as good as you're going to get and it can go higher. So it's really not very early invention in, in, in children. No, I, I like that. I think, I think there's a lot of benefit in, you know, working with people who, you know, just to help them understand there's more to the world than their viewpoint may be. And, so, and they're limited by those V-turns because they they're only around people that can only tell them what to see, right? I mean, that's why you have to surround yourselves. I mean, that's why you always have to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. And, 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 and that's what happens kind of when one door opens and you get in here at this door and then another door opens. And, 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 and having that be part of your system is important because you don't know what you don't know. You just, that's simply the case. You just don't know what you don't know. Do you think about your legacy? I mean, obviously with kids, you think about, you know, how your kids think of you, but do you think of building a legacy, what your legacy is going to be? Do you, is that something you even worry about? I don't worry about, but I of course think about it all the time. Um, I do have a vision of what I look like at 60. I have a vision of what I want to look like when I'm at 70 and I, you know, hopefully if I'm still alive, I have a vision of what I want to look like when I'm 80. Um, I can honestly tell you I have fairly clear visions about some of those different versions of myself. And for the most part, I've had at least for the, the latter 10, 15 years of my life. And and, it, and it's not important to get into the detail of that, but, but, but legacy is to me is something that is also is like, who do you want to be? You know, who do you want to be? And so when I think about it is, is, is how I think about it is that when I'm dead and someone's given a eulogy, you know, what do they want to be saying about me? And, and, and what, what, what is it that's important for me? And, um, I have, I know what, I, I know what I want them to say about me, but it's going to take me still till, till I'm 80 or 70 to really get what, what I want them to think about. And that's why I have a different version of myself at 60 and 70 and 80. But at the end of the day, it's the things that we all want. But for me, what's really, really important is that, that people think of me as a, um, as and a good person is such a broad, broad thing, but, but that people think that I'm a really genuine, um, caring person about individual people where, you know, not selfish, um, humble, um, always willing to help and give away. And, and more importantly, probably the number one biggest thing is that, you know, that I was a great dad, you know, that I was a great dad and a, and, and a good friend to all my friends and a, and a good husband to my wife. That's probably at the top of it. Um, that's the one that I think about when hopefully I get to where I'm 70 as my kids will hopefully, you know, be in their twenties and thirties. And that's when they'll really look back and be like, you know what, my dad really made my life better, but not from a monetary standpoint, but really made me a stronger person and taught me all the 
good values of life. And when they look back, um, that, that they think that that was a contributing factor to them being doing something great. That matters to me probably the most. Very, very cool. I like that. All right. Um, is there anything you would like, you know, the listeners in our show to know, um, is there anything they can do? You know, can, obviously if anyone has an auto, auto mechanics, um, to reach out to you, but is there anything else? <laughs> um, the book? You know, check out the book. Yeah. I mean, selfishly I say this, but it's not, but I, but I, but I think the book is powerful. Um, because I don't, and I know this because of all the people I talk to and, and, and consult or mentor is that, that, that at the end of the day, whether you're an entrepreneur, a great entrepreneur, a great businessman, or a great doctor, you're still a human being. And all human beings are subject to the same psychological challenges that a doctor or a president or an astronaut is. But a lot of times we think when somebody is really successful, that that's, that goes across the board. And a lot of times that, that what people aren't doing and, and, and studying and paying attention is their psychological well-being. And they don't really understand that they, you know, they have some depression and most people do and, and um, they're not doing anything about that. So the biggest thing I always tell people, you want to be a great business and you want to be really, really successful. Just like you take care of your body and, and you work out and you try to eat well and then you do, you, you do those things. You need to go take care of your mind because the better psychologically sound I became and strong I became, the better businessman I become. And people don't associate those two together. And I say it's 50-50. Um, you can be a great entrepreneur, a great thinker, but if you're messed up psychologically, you'll only go so far. This period, just absolutely period, you only go so far. But and 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 in the small, in some cases, you might get lucky and and hit out of the park. But that means that at your core, you won't be good. Yeah, I mean, I always tell people, you know, when I'm working, even just when we're talking marketing, you're always going to see people who do amazing things the way that yeah you, know, you can't even imagine that they should be able to. But the reality is most of us have to struggle and repeat and grow and practice. And it only happens over time and effort and you know, repetitive nature. So yes, someone is going to hit it out of the, you know, I always joke, I fired an intern once who went and became um, eBay employee number eight. And he's now a very successful VC and he doesn't want me actually saying his name, but after they went public, he sent me a very nice F you, like literally a statue of an F you. Um, but, you know, he was the gopher at eBay for number eight. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a fun thing, but I like, I really do appreciate you sharing with us because as an entrepreneur, I've struggled a lot with these, you know, with. Yeah, you know, my thought process, you know, what is success? What are the different things? So I like the way you've brought it up and, you know, how you're using it now to kind of create a wider, more open environment for yourself as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I, I, so I, I appreciate that. I think it's really important that whatever you do occupationally or entrepreneurship, that doesn't become a, that's not your labor I'm your, and your identity. I'm part of them. Um, I happen to I had to be an entrepreneur. I'm a father and thing. And I think people tend to think of themselves in some way in the occupation that they perform. And I think that's a really dangerous thing or, or at worst, at best, 
if you can try not to think of that way and think of yourself as, as all of those things, then you'll have a much more clearer picture if you really like yourself and where you're going. Because if you just think of yourself as the entrepreneur and if you're successful, then you think you're, you, then, then, then your, your, your view of yourself is, is, is perhaps, not, perhaps not as good as it should be. You might think of yourself, let me, sorry, let me say that again. You might think of yourself as that you're better than you are as a person because you're, you're, you're putting so much weight on the fact that you're really good sales. You're really good businessman, um, and and I think you should put equal weight in all those things and look at yourself holistically. The full realm of your life versus you know one aspect. No, I like that very much. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Um, we'll we'll have on the notes down below. We'll have links to your um, to your book, and you know so people can check it out and reach out to you. Hopefully someone will be interested in selling their shop to you. Um, and also we'll have information about subscribing to the um, show. So um, once again, thank you very much for thank being you, on the show. Talk to thank you soon. Thank you. I don't know about you listeners, but I feel really inspired. And more importantly, I feel really, really, really raring to get going and start thinking about greater and bigger things for my own business. That's it for today's episode, but you can and you should learn more about Param's life and his businesses, especially his book, in the show notes below. So check out the links, they're where we always put them, and you'll really, really get a lot out of this. Really, really. If you enjoyed today's episode of Beyond 8 Figures, please consider rating us wherever you get your podcast. Graffiti tags work too. Um, share your feedback with us on social media also. We love it. And let us know what you think and how we can make the show even better for you in the future. So thank you again for listening, and I can't wait to speak to you soon. Talk with you later. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.